Hello and thanks for listening to RT Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Nick In this episode, I'll be talking to five composers who recently took part in our Fuishiv project, where 10 musicians were commissioned to write a tune for the programme. And this project was also supported by the Irish Traditional Music Archive. Our first guest tonight is musician and composer Damien McGeehan from County Donegal. Some of you might know him from his great work with the band Vigil. Prior to the pandemic, Damien was a very busy touring musician, playing with many different artists. He's just released his second solo album, which is called Kin, and there's a lot of information on that and on Damien on his website, damienmcgeehan.com. So Damien's main instrument is the fiddle, and it's an instrument that he uses in lots of different ways. And I asked him about that and about the scope of the instrument itself. I'm interested in a lot of different genres, um... You know, I, I, not alone do I listen to them, but I actually try to play different genres as well. You know, I've spent a lot of time kind of breaking down, uh, you know, stuff like the solos, like that Stefan Grappelli would take in the old Hawk Club recordings, um, old bluegrass recordings. Um, so, you know, I listen to a lot of different genres, and um, yeah, there's huge scope with the instrument. It's it's an incredible instrument, and I like to try to use it in arranging as well kind of like I did in this piece. Um, I just think that there's a lot of sounds possible with the fiddle. Um, It can be used in so many different ways. There's so many different techniques that you can use. And, uh, yeah, it's a a great delight from it, from experimenting with it. And I I usually think, like, in terms of how a band would arrange a piece of music. Like, so, like, you might have a drum kit, a bass, and a guitar. And I try to bring those elements out on the fiddle. And, of course, when you do that on the fiddle, then it sounds pretty different. You know, if you create a percussion loop on the fiddle, it's going to sound so different to, you know, a conventional drum kit or whatever. Say when you're playing um, the fiddle with with the band fiddle or, or with your when you're multi-tracking, is there a sense of great comfort in playing with along with the same instrument in that you can weave in and out very comfortably? You know exactly what the limitations are or what the possibilities are or what the sound will be like or how they'll work together. Is that is that something that's kind of... Um, you know, secure, but then leaves you loads of possibilities as well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it is secure in a way, and uh, I try to, uh, I try to use, you know, different things in terms of an arrangement, uh, you know, to make it stand out, because what I found in the past, through a lot of experimentation and wasting a lot of time (laughs) in the studio, uh, when you start layering loads and loads of fiddles, you know, they eventually start getting lost. So, I experiment with like different tunings. I have a fiddle that is set up with octave strings, and I started actually combining uh, octave strings and regular strings on a fiddle. So like I made of two bass strings and then two high strings. Um, then the percussion thing, you know, you can make that stand out. Obviously, because you're not playing notes, you're just playing a rhythm. So I, I kind of try to be mindful of that when I'm arranging that everything will have its own space. So it was a real, uh, you know, it's a process of experimentation, really, um, to kind of get to where we are with this type of thing now. And what about composition? When did that start for you? That started fairly early on. I was always writing little tunes, you know, uh, when I was younger. It's something that I never really put myself under any pressure with. You know, I never really tried to write tunes that much. If something came to me well and good, and if not, then I wasn't going to force it. Um, it was pretty organic, the whole thing. 
Um, the first series of compositions for the Rolling Wave, the Fuishiv series, those tunes were all written during the lockdown. And uh, then this new series was commissioned in the sort of post-vaccine days um, when things were looking up, even though I know things are rough enough at the moment, but when things were lo- looking up. So for you, what were the past 18 months like for you? I mean, did everything just totally grind to a halt or what was going on with you? Yeah, everything pretty much ground to a halt. Um, I was gigging right up until the right up until the first lockdown, so I was really burnt out. And you know, the, the lockdown, first of all, it felt like a holiday. It gave me a chance to just draw my breath, and uh, you know, just take it easy for a while. So yeah, it kind of went from being happy of having the break to getting kind of anxious about getting back to work, and then. It became, I, I found a real safe place in the pandemic. I, I'd been away from home so much that I kind of lost a sense of of having a home, of what it was like to be at home. And, uh, you know, I you know, rediscovered that. And I just, I, I found myself in a place then where I was really scared about going back to normal. Um, and that was probably around the time that uh, you contacted me about composing these tunes. I was kind of very very comfortable at home and actually just really wanting to stay at home and not you know break out of this little bubble that I'd become accustomed to well these tunes as you as you said came out of some of those emotions maybe tell me a little bit about them um I I think it came from the fear of returning to normal it was composed around that time and uh you know marches are really really powerful tunes they're up tempo but maybe you know they're they're not as naughty as reels or whatever. So there's 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 this great drive and power in them, you know. And there's this kind of sense of getting ready for, getting ready for battle, you know. And uh, I th- I think that's why I decided to do marches because I kind of felt like <clears throat> going back to normal. I was kind of battling to to get over that I was going to have to leave this little bubble that I become accustomed to. So that's why there were marches. Um, and uh, yeah, the first one is is influenced definitely by uh, a track on the Floating Bow collection, which is uh, an album that was released to John Doherty's music. There's a track on that, uh, then is Skillin's Dragoons, where he plays an air and a march in a reel, I think it is. And it's all played just, he drones an open string and he plays all the melodies on the string beside it. So he's this drone going the whole way through it. Now that may not really be apparent in the arrangement. <laughs> Back to what we were talking about earlier, I think I layered up so much fiddles that maybe you kind of lose the fact that it's uh, that it's played, that whole tune's played on one string kind of. But that's that's where the influence for that one came from. It's called Tigris March and that's named after a cat that appeared in the pandemic at our house and uh, it was just a little stray cat that started showing up we started feeding it and eventually it started putting its head into the house and now it's lying in beside the fire ruling the roost so that's Tigris March and then the second one I named that uh, my wife Shauna we've just had our first child there on the 28th of October and so she was fairly heavily pregnant when she was listening to this piece I played it for her and when the second tune kicked in the child started kicking, so that's why the second one's called the Kicking Rascal. So two, they're two very dark tunes with two very joyous titles. <laughs>
Damien McGeehan there with Tigris March and the Kicking Rascal. Well, to the harp now, and Una Nilanagoin won the O'Ria the Gold Medal competition on Bowen or O'Radio Nagelthachta in 2018, and that gave her the impetus to take a break from her teaching job and work on music performance and composition full time. And as a direct result of COVID, she moved to Inishmian, where she now lives, and I spoke to her from there. She told me a little about her musical background. I have been playing music since I was three and I was never particularly motivated or dedicated but I knew I wanted to be able to play music with my dad and my cousins and at the sessions and the parties I was brought to and I was lucky enough that my mom kind of noticed that I wasn't that passionate about the fiddle and she said look we'll get you a second instrument it wasn't a question of oh you can give it up it was you can choose which instrument you play, love. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, <woman>. exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, what is kind of unusual is that uh, she was a really clever person in that she realised like there had to be an element of autonomy and exposure about choosing an instrument. So she brought us to Flakyol and Heron when I was 10. And she brought us around to all the different competitions so we could see kids playing different instruments. But one thing we didn't go to see was a harp competition, probably because it's just so it was definitely quite unusual at that time. But it just so happened that it was, as a big treat, we we're staying in a and b and uh, the woman who had the B&B used to play the harp and kept the harp in her breakfast room. So I didn't eat breakfast for the whole three days. I was just plinkety plonketing on this. And uh, at the end of the three days, my mother said to me, well, did you see any instruments you liked? And to be honest, I was more interested in the pizzeria in Clonmel now than any of the instruments I had seen or heard. But um, she was like, after a kind of registered uh, null point, she said, well, what did you think of the harp? And I just had this little kind of flash of, hmm, that was cool, actually. I did like that. And she said, OK, right, well, I we'll see what we can do and uh, I was really lucky there was only six harp makers working in Ireland at the time but it just so happened one of them was in my village and mom knew his wife and she went to the wonderful Paddy Cafferkey and Tony Cafferkey and said well Una might be interested in playing the harp and how would we set that up and they were wonderful and rented us a harp and pointed us towards Kathleen Lucknan who was one of the most important people in my life's journey and a wonderful harp teacher and uh, thus I got set up with the harp and, an in- and a teacher and I started and that was the the first step in this big crazy journey. <laughs> and your interest in composition then uh, when or how did that come about? Um, I've always been interested in composition I suppose um, when from a very young age I've seen myself as somebody who writes music it's always on in the background and sometimes it literally kind of screams in my ear so um, if I get a commission or if I decide I want to write something I can sit down and I can make something happen but what quite frequently happens is I'll wake up in the morning with a piece of music in my head and then it's just a question of going to the harp and developing it and it's like I don't have a choice in the matter <laughs> so um, that's what happened with these two pieces that are composed for you here you might tell me then about the tunes we're about to hear, the tunes that you wrote for The Rolling Wave. 
So there is a loved one called Bill in our circle and he's in his 80s and he lives in America. And because of this, of course, we weren't going to be able to go over and celebrate with him. And it was really important to me to mark this and make sure that he knew he was loved and appreciated and we were thinking of him. So fortunately, the day around his birthday, I woke up with this tune in my head. (laughs) It's like great timing, subconscious. Thank you. I owe you one. (laughs) And um, I called it Brehla Bill or Bill's birthday in his honour. And that's dedicated to him. So happy birthday, Bill Motner. And and then the second tune, Una. So I'm actually quite kind of an indoorsy techie person. I don't get out much. But um, what is super cool about moving to Inishman is that you are like forced into noticing the elements. Say, you have no choice on Inishman, no. <laughs> exactly. So like I suppose number one is just more exposed. So like if it's windy, boy, well, you know about it, you know. Um, and then if it gets really, really stormy, well, you might not have your shopping arrive or your electricity might go or you might not be able to get to the mainland for that meeting with your mom and dad or whatever, you know. So uh, it's rare now, in all fairness. Last winter, we only had one or two like flight, uh, one or two sailings that didn't go. So this is just a very unusual occurrence. But uh, like I'm here looking at the sea as I talk to you and I've definitely become more in touch with nature living here. And I am so much more aware of the weather. I'm so much more, more aware of storms. I'm so much more aware of the changing of the seasons and the temperature. I'm a bit more aware of the birds and the flowers. And I'm also a lot more aware of daylight. So the solstice of course came this year and the morning after the solstice I woke up with this waltz in my head and I called it Valsan Greenstad. I think the Irish word for solstice is lovely. Greenstad. Sunstop. It's very funny. <laughs> Nilana Gain and Chinish and Dotun, a scrape sheet and chlor, Bretlaw, Bill, Agus Valsa, Ulgrian Stad. Moira Branagh is a very well known musician, teacher, academic, and a producer who's worked with a huge range of great Irish musicians throughout her career, including uh, Sharon Shannon, Liam Wainley, Sonny Condell, Jim McCann, Cormac Branagh, Cormac Debarra, and many, many more. She's released at least five solo albums, including The Voyage of Bran and Angel's Candles, all of which feature her own compositions. Storm Barra got in the way of a studio interview this week, so we spoke on the phone from West Kerry, and she told me how the fiddle came to be her first instrument. When I used to be going to Marlborough Street uh, to Skullvira in the mornings, uh, McCullough Piggott's had a shop on um, Colbrough Street there, just beside uh, where the uh, catering college was. And they had a window full of instruments and uh, I suppose discreet lighting uh, so that um, the varnish on the instruments shone and that kind of thing. And there was a wonderful fiddle, which was a full-size fiddle, of course, um, in the window there. It probably was, um, you know, not a a very expensive one, but it looked absolutely beautiful. And 
I used to pass that in the mornings and uh, it held a huge fascination, I must say. <laughs> I remember it. And um, my father worked in the College of Music. He was the porter in the College of Music at the time. And I used to sit there uh, after school. My mother might collect me and bring me over and uh, just for him to take me home. There was no uh, talk of music lessons then. And one day the principal came and uh, he was chatting away to me, Michael McNamara. And he said to me, oh, um, you know, what are you doing there? And I just said, well, I'm waiting for my dad. Uh, he's bringing me home. And he asked then, um, you know, uh, what does your dad do here? And I said, oh, well, he, well, you, of course. And uh, I said, oh, and my dad owns this place. And um, he said, oh, and is that so? And uh, I probably was about six. <laughs> and uh, he said then, um, and what do they do in here? And at that stage, um, you could hear the singers uh, out in the street, even in those days, they used to be practicing their scales and arpeggios and warming up. So I said to him, well, it's all full of singers and they all go la, 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 la. And <laughs> I gave him a mini recital. So he said, and would you like to play music? And I said, yes, indeed, I would. And uh, there was a wonderful violin in the window of McCullough tickets and it's on my way to school and so on. So uh, it must have had an effect because a few months later, um, when I was, as you do when you're six, uh, rummaging in cupboards at home, I discovered um, a very small uh, and very uh, handy quarter-sized fiddle, uh, which had been um, found and borrowed for me at, uh, I'd say, enormous expense, going around looking to see, uh, not necessarily financially, but going around and asking everybody if they had a small quarter-sized fiddle, because it wasn't so common in those days to have smaller instruments. And uh, that's uh, that was uh, put aside for me uh, to start. And I think I started shortly after my sixth birthday. So that's how I got a violin. And uh, turning turning to the writing of tunes, then what's your methodology? Because you have a classical training as well, so you could uh, potentially sit down and write the music out if you wanted to. So what is it that you do? Do you work from the instrument? Do you record ideas, or what do you find works for you? I think it happens in a variety of ways. Um, certainly it's possible to sit down, not that you would have the impetus or the urge to do that uh, perhaps every single day, but I know there are people who map out time and you know swear by that and that's their way of working. Um, I wouldn't be quite as organised as that, but sometimes when an idea takes hold, it's like when you have a, a mind map page and other ideas start shooting out from the centre, if you know what I mean. So sometimes you get very far with the kind of uh, impetus that you get from that. But I do find as well that walking is very interesting in that regard because you're setting up a rhythm, you're walking, and sometimes a strain of melody, for want of a better word, will come into your head. And while you're walking, the rhythm of the walk and uh, the tune itself somehow fused together and then very often you can find that uh, little harmonies or counterpoints come as well and I think it's sometimes it's just a matter of letting the tune write itself and, and just see where it wants to go I know that sounds a bit airy-fairy but um, yeah I suppose that's the kind of thing particularly during the pandemic when it was more common for me to be going out for a walk <laughs> uh, and I think I mean that's that kind of approach I think nature has always inspired people to write I mean if you think not that I'm comparing myself but if you think of Vivaldi and the Four Seasons and 
Beethoven and the Pastoral Symphony, I mean, walking has always, uh, or being out in nature, has always contributed to musical ideas. Okay, well, look, tell me about this piece that you've written for The Rolling Wave. Tell me first what it's called and then tell me a a little about it and how, I suppose, how it's put together because, um, well, sure, we can talk about it. You you explain it to me and then I'll come back to you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It's called Spashtorich, which I suppose translates as uh, a stroll or a walk. And like I mentioned earlier, the idea of uh, walking and a rhythm being set up. I mean, if you think in classical music of the term andante at a walking pace, um, not that I necessarily was thinking of that <laughs> that term at the time, but uh, the idea, I think, came to me while I was walking. And then it was a matter of seeing where it might go um, and being aware of possible chord progressions that would accompany it. And um, it's hard to explain the counter melodies, but they kind of, I suppose, be like a crossword puzzle. You have the across and down, you know. So um, some of the the down clues where it would be the chords and the across would be the melodies, if you know what I mean. And um, yeah, I think it developed out of being out walking. I can't say exactly what day and when, but... Um, I was keeping notes and of the musical notes that is, and um, it grew out of that. And the day you came in to record it in the studio, you recorded the first line, and then you layered the other lines on top of it. Were the other lines formally composed, or did you improvise them as you went along? Um, they were improvised, but had been, I suppose, uh, tried. Uh, out in part or a variant of them might have been tried out before at home but uh, really when it comes to trying to to putting the lines together I have an idea but it's more spontaneous when I'm doing it and uh, the lines are they sort of take off like a kite then and they blow in the wind some way Well, to America now and to a woman who's a hugely influential and important figure in Irish music, Joni Madden has been at the helm of the band Cherish the Ladies for nearly 37 years now. She's won numerous awards, including this year she was given the National Heritage Award in the US, although unfortunately COVID put a stop to many of the official and uh, presumably fun celebrations. But last week when we spoke, she was also having the busiest week of the last 18 months because Cherish the Ladies were midway through a pared down December tour and she was also due at the Irish Arts Centre in New York to receive their Spirit of Ireland award. But her beginnings in music go back to a childhood in the Bronx and she told me a little bit about that. Well I, I'm born in the Bronx um, and but my father was from Galway, Portumna and my father was a, was a, a really great accordion player. His name was Joe Madden and uh, he was very 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 popular big time musician here in New York 
um, he came out to, to New York and signed up. Uh, Patty Kaloran heard him play, and he signed up with Patty Kaloran, played with Patty Kaloran's band here for many years. And then when Patty was retiring, he gave the band to my father. And that's when Joe Madden's orchestra was born. And they used to play, there was so, many, so much immigration here in the 60s and 70s. Um, he played all the weddings and the dances, and he had a 16-piece band. And as soon as I could play two tunes, <laughs> he had me in the band, and I was playing. I'd go up and play my little my party pieces. So he got me hooked on the music very early, uh, and then I kind of just became a natural progression for me to follow the music. But it was through Mick Maloney's phone call um, saying he wanted to do a concert series featuring women musicians uh, where I the Cherish the Ladies, I suggest the title Cherish the Ladies, and we did the three concerts in New York City that were all sold out, and we went on to record an album and it was chosen by the Library of Congress as the best folk album of the year, and through that we got a, a tour, a grant to do a tour for 12 dates, and now we've done over 4,000 concerts all around the world, so, um, and here I am, <laughs> I'll be 37 years uh, as leader of the band now uh, in, in two weeks, so... Who'd ever think it that a girl from the Bronx would be running all over the world with my Irish whistle? I'll tell you, <laughs> never in a million years. <laughs> but the whistle, Joni, you tried other instruments, didn't you, before you settled on the whistle? Well, you know, I'm one of seven children, and my father desperately, he, I guess he saw that I had music in me very early. I, I remember there was a session at our house when I was four years old with Joe Burke and, and Sean, all the great musicians around New York, and... They put me to bed 10 times and no way would I go to bed. And finally, Joe Burke had me on his lap saying, oh, for God's sakes, can't you see she's got the bug? Leave her alone. Leave her up. So the rest of the kids went to bed, but not me when there was a tune happening. I'm still like that. I won't go to bed when I should, Aoife. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, my dad started me on the fiddle and sent me for some classical lessons, which that didn't. I, I, went, I went for the fiddle for about six months, I guess, and I couldn't stand it. And then tried the piano and I... Didn't like that either. And it wasn't until I saw the whistle, and I was so lucky to have Jack Cohn, who was a great flute player from Woodford in County Galway, who lived around the corner from me and played with my dad. Uh, they were great friends, and uh, Jack would have won All-Ireland Championship with Patty O'Brien and, and Larry Redigan back in the Flaw days. And, and the amazing thing was that my great-uncles would have taught Jack the Stanley Brothers. So my great-uncles taught Jack, and then Jack turned around and taught me. So there you go, um, and here I am. Uh, but yeah, it did take a couple of instruments. That's why I always tell parents, let the kid pick their instrument because if they're going to play, it's going to be what they want to play. But I, I started the whistle, I guess I was almost 13, and as soon as I started playing, I was hooked. I couldn't stop. And I had, the, of course, the huge advantage of ha hearing all those tunes for so many years through my father and his sessions and his, all his buddies. So the music came quickly to me because hearing it all my life growing up, yeah, having that that osmosis <laughs> getting into you, whether you liked it or not. And, and, and tell me about the writing of tunes then, when that started, and I suppose when you discovered it was something you could do. Well, the first tune I ever wrote was uh, The Cat's Meow. It was the jig that I wrote. Uh, and I didn't have, I was going over to Ireland to compete in the Flacchiola, and I, I, didn't have a, a, I didn't have a jig. So I said, let me just see if I can try and make one up. And I remember I worked all night, and my father came down at 5 o'clock in the morning, and he was going to work. And um, he said, uh, what the hell is that? I said, oh, I just, I just made it up. And I, I saw him, I saw his eyeballs go up in the air and, um, you know, with the surprise look. And, uh, and um, he said, Jesus, play that again. And he didn't tell me it was good or bad, but um, he said, it's nice. And I, I went to Ireland. I played at the Flaw. I never played it again in New York. Never played it. I wouldn't play a tune that nobody knew in a session. 
And the next thing you know, I went back and everybody and their mother was playing it. Um, a couple of the people had, had uh, recorded it, I guess, at the FLA, and especially a girl named Siobhan O'Donnell, and she went back and learned it in England, started over in London and made its way across England and then over, and now everybody's playing it. But I guess I was 15 when I wrote that. And I, um, when I, my, my process of writing, I don't sit down to write a tune. It doesn't work that way with me. I, uh, something just pops in my head, and I write a tune within uh, usually two minutes. It's there, boom. It just comes to me, and I just start writing. But as I said, this jig, I called it <laughs> uh, when the world stopped, because that's what it was like for me. The world stopped. I mean, uh, we were supposed to have the, I was supposed to have the best year of our career. I had 1,000 people booked on my cruise. I had three sold-out bus tours. I had, uh, you know, our cherished ladies' 35th anniversary. We had 100 and over 100 cities booked. And, and then boomy for overnight, gone, gone, everything. The rug pulled out from underneath us. So, you know... We're getting back going slowly, and I know it's very frustrating, especially for all my fellow musicians in the arts. And, you know, it's been such a huge financial blow to all of us. You know, when you want to work and you can't, and then when you get going, you book concerts, they're sold out, and then they have to cancel them. Good God, it's like, you're like, when can we catch a break here? So I hope to God the uh, Irish government takes care of all those musicians because, and, you know, the lighting guys, the tech guys, the sound guys, because they all, you know, they all want to work. They're being stopped from work, so I hope I hope um, everybody takes care of them and realizes the what what the musicians do for for Ireland. As somebody who brings tours back, that's all the Yanks want to see. They want to hear Irish from music, and they want to see it out there, and they want to see it in the pubs. They want to see it in the and and that's what people come for. And of course, our, our tourism is one of the major driving forces and, and economic stimuluses for Ireland. So I hope people value those musicians because by God, Ireland has created an incredible amount of world-class musicians. It's unbelievable what that small little country has done. Madden there, accompanied by Gabriel Donahue, and that was Joni's tune when the world stopped. And so finally, we're coming closer to home and to Connie O'Connell, who is from Kilnamartra in County Cork. Connie is very well known as a fiddle player, a teacher and a composer of tunes. One of his tunes, The Torn Jacket, is very firmly established in the session repertoire. He published 69 of his own tunes in a book, which was later turned into an online resource hosted by UCC. And you can have a look at that. Just uh, type in Connie O'Connell and tunes into a search engine and you'll find it easily enough. And there's an amazing resource there about the music of Connie O'Connell. But the music of Schlieve Lucher has also been very influential on Connie O'Connell and his playing. And just recently he was honoured for his commitment to that music at a special event at the Padraig O'Keefe Festival. But when we spoke, he told me first about the music he heard growing up. Well, I, I suppose I, I grew up listening to, to traditional music here at home because my mother played uh, Milogian, you know, the singy, tin key Milogian. And um, well, she didn't have a big repertoire of tunes or anything like that, but she'd play for a set or in, in a house dance at the time. When I was very young, I remember that happening here at home. But I wasn't playing a fiddle at the time or didn't play anything really, but I tried the melodion. I didn't like it. 
But um, when I was, I think I was about 12 or 13 when I got the first fiddle. And at that time, there was no, there was no one here around this part of the world teaching music. There was no classes. There was nothing going on like that at the time. So there was no way of actually learning any instrument at all. But um, I was self-taught, totally self-taught. But there was, there was a man coming into the house. He was, he was married to my aunt. And he had some idea how to tune a fiddle. He didn't. He wasn't able to play, but he had some idea that that uh, how to tune the fiddle. Such as he actually showed me how to tune a fiddle. He couldn't play it at all himself. Mm. But from there, I worked, and I taught myself uh, from there on. And and where did you get the tunes? Where did you Where did you get the tunes to learn? <laughs> well, they get the tunes to learn. I suppose I the my few tunes that my mother had. I learned them first. I yeah, I liked the likes of the Boys of Blue Hill and. <laughs> And uh, saddle the pony, two tunes like that. Mm. And um, then I was listening to the likes of um, Kieran McMahona and Shima Sinis. They were radio programs at the time. And uh, by listening to the radio, you'd hear a, a program and you'd listen to a tune and you'd wait for maybe the second part of it for maybe a month before you'd get the second part of it. <laughs> and then you'd, you'd try and play it the best to the best possible way you could, like, you know. And um, You'd wait for these people that I actually never see for years afterwards, the likes of Paddy Kenny and Willie Clancy and John Kelly, all those musicians and they were being played on the radio at the time. Never saw them or didn't know what they looked like. Only I knew their music, like, you know. Mm. And uh, you waited, you listened to that each week. Well, Connie, you've written a good number of tunes at this stage and uh, I know some of them were published in a book a few years ago. Tell me how that book came into being. I brought out a CD in 1999, I suppose. Uh, Shanaki Records brought out a CD. Uh, it was called Kilmartra. And um, I had a few tunes composed for that particular CD and I had composed a few more then afterwards and they were there and they were in... Uh, written in bits of paper and they were in, in dictaphones and they were all over the place. So I thought that I wanted to do something with them because they were going to get lost and they were going to go for nothing. So I came up with the idea of doing the book, which I did and it finished up with 69 tunes in it. And, uh, uh, you know, th that gave me initiative to, to, to write tunes at the time and to... I suppose, compose more. Whereas after I writing the book, the book is written since 2015. I think it was pu published in 2015. And after that, I, I didn't compose any more until you actually asked me to do this one. Nice. And um, there recently as well, the, the, the um, Padre Key Festival in Castle Island granted me there the start of the year and asked me, say, would I compose a tune or two for the festival, which I did. And beyond that, like, I think nowadays I have to have a sort of purpose to compose a tune, but I, can, I, I, I still do it like, you know. And, you know, talking to people for this series, I mean, some people carry melodies around their heads and, you know, have to write them down and other people have to sit down in a quiet room and sort of, you know, give it their attention. When you go to write a tune, is it like that? Are you carrying a melody around for a few days or, or what's, what's the way you go about it or where do you get your sort of inspiration mm. for them? Well, definitely I don't carry a melody around for a few days. I probably carry it for five minutes. <laughs> if I, the, the only way I compose is, or actually I nearly always compose, if there's a fiddle fairly close to me, mm. or a tape, well, piece of paper that I will scribble it down on, 
or um, um, probably a dictaphone or something that I put in. Maybe I might put in a couple of bars into that and I'd work from there. We'll say, if I if I get a good bar, if I think of a, a nice bar and I say, oh, that's a good start at tune, then I'm off. I can work from there then. Mm. But I have to get that one or two bars first. I think that's my way of doing it. Sure. I was listening to, to your program the, the, on Sunday night and I was listening to all the, the composers that were on it and you know, I came to the conclusion that nobody actually knows how they compose. Mm. They have ideas like me, but they don't. It's something that comes and, you know, you don't you do know where it comes from. Mm. And behind those 69 that you're ready to put out into the world, would there be other tunes that you just don't make the grade for you that you get rid of? Well, <laughs> 69 tunes out and I probably... Five hundred gone down the down into the into the waste basket, you know. So it is. There's, I'd say, for every tune that comes out, you could have at least two, three, any number of tunes that don't make it at all, mm. or never will make it. You know, for the simple reason that you find something wrong with the tune, you find that is very like another tune, which is the big thing. You find that there's some bar or two bars or probably a phrase of the tune that is not nice not working, and then it goes into the wastebasket. Gone. So the, the work process behind getting that one good one out is, is a, long, uh, a long process of, of, of well, editing. Well, it, it is. Sometimes, sometimes it is and more times it isn't, you know. Mm. Because for some reason then, you know, if I compose a tune and I find, like I was saying there, that there's some bar or something that I don't like, I don't really edit a tune anymore. For some reason, I, I I just don't. If if it is not right from the word go, I don't say I'll change that bar. Okay. That doesn't happen at all. I, I can't do that. It doesn't work for some reason. So so you don't pick at it. Uh, you don't pick it apart in that <laughs> exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I don't pick it apart anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is, if it is right, it is right. And if it is wrong, start again. Put it in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, tell me about this tune now, a hornpipe that you've written for the Rolling Wave. I, I called it the um, two-meter hornpipe for very obvious reasons that, that this two meters distancing is going on with, with two years now, you could say. And everywhere, when it came in first, it was keep two meters apart from everybody else. It was written on doors and floors and windows and keep two meters. So it kind of, uh, at the time that you looked for a tune from me, I was thinking about that and I said, yeah, I think I'll try and associate it with this period in our life where we're all in in, in very strange circumstances. So I called it the two-metre hornpipe. Two-metre hornpipe played by Connie O'Connell with Jack Talty on piano. 
And thanks for listening to the Rolling Wave podcast. For rights reasons, the music here is shorter than in the original broadcast. So if you'd like to hear the full versions of all these tunes, you can go to rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash the rolling wave. And the full playlist of all 10 new compositions was broadcast on the 3rd of April 2022. Till the next time, Gurmila Mahagi, Agaslan.